Hi again, listeners, and welcome back to IFTF's Future Now, a podcast with the interesting researchers, scientists, and thinkers shaping our collective future. I'm Jean Hagen, IFTF's executive producer, and in today's episode, our new media and tech researcher, Toshi Hu, talks with Jules Turpak. Jules is a Gen Z content trailblazer known for her work unpacking technology and culture trends on platforms like TikTok and YouTube. Together, they explore the implications of recent breakthroughs in generative AI and just what they could mean for the future of work. Jules provides an on-the-ground perspective of how AI might transform the creative field. Things like what new job categories could emerge and how we can build an equitable future that's enhanced by AI rather than displacing human agency. For IFTF listeners, this provides a glimpse into the changing landscape of work in the age of artificial intelligence. If it really sparks your interest, you might consider joining one of IFTF's sessions on the three horizons of AI, specifically designed to help participants like you interpret the extraordinary pace of change happening in AI tech today, while developing practical, long-term perspectives for yourself, your organization, or your community. Find out more about how to sign up for these sessions on IFTF.org. Hello, I'd like to welcome Jules Turpak to our show today. I came across Jules on her TikTok series, Growing Digital, that unpacks recent trends in technology and social media and culture. And Jules also has a really active presence on Twitter, aka X, and YouTube (laughs) as well. At IFTF, we're always interested in fresh perspectives on the future, and Jules brings a really fresh voice into futures forecasting. I know you cover a lot of various topics, but today we're going to be talking about the recent breakthroughs in generative AI and what that might mean for the future of work and particularly for younger people who are just beginning to develop their careers. How's that sound? Sounds great. I'm excited. Thanks for having me. Could you just give us a little bit of your background? I know you've been online for many years. Talk about kind of the different platforms that you've worked with and where you are today. Yeah, so I was born in 1997, which was kind of the first Gen Z year that people say. I had grown up, yeah, chronically online. I was posting YouTube videos by the age of 10, which I, I do not recommend letting your kids do. My digital footprint is pretty scary. I was like, I also grew a Tumblr page in middle school and early high school, and I have access to my Tumblr, and it is like very scary. <laughs> I was posting on there at such a young age. And then in high school and college, I grew topic-based Instagram pages. For example, my one that grew the most was based on health and wellness And then out of college was right as I was leaving college towards the end was the rise of TikTok in 2019. And I was just fascinated by this. And just my experience growing up with every platform as these platforms grew from the start, I was just like, it made me realize, oh, wow, we are the first generation to grow up with these platforms from our, first of all, adolescence and also just grow up ingrained in the internet to the extent that we did. And I never really saw people talking about that. So on TikToks, I start talking about it and it's really resonating with people because, yeah, I feel like our generation just wasn't conscious of how wild that is that we were born into that and how like kind of unique of an experience that it is, not for better or not for worse necessarily. It's just a different experience and trying to learn how to navigate that, especially since the pandemic and our lives had become so much more online than they were before. I think before the pandemic, people could still kind of deem social media just a fun, silly thing. You follow like your friends and family. But now it is becoming increasingly about social globalization in the way. How I like to put it is your friends and the people you pay attention to are more so becoming strangers, people that you meet online and come across via algorithms. 
and also just like your work life. You're utilizing the internet more and more for your side hustles. People are building their careers predominantly online. That's been prevalent across generations, but more and more you see it's, there's that stat that goes around all the time of like 60 to 70% of kids today say they want like an online career. And then just how it's affecting education and everything, like every aspect of our lives. And these, again, these social media platforms wanting to become super apps that obviously affects every aspect of our consumer experience, our finances, and again, back into like work education. So just have been fascinated by how these platforms are becoming more integrated with us and wanted to kind of cover that to help people make sense of it because it's fast evolving and a lot of innovation. It's overwhelming for the average person to keep up with. Generative AI obviously is a huge, broad, emerging topic, and there's many different perspectives and takes on it. I'm just curious, what are you tracking in this phenomena? What do you think are some of the most kind of interesting breakthroughs and implications? You know, I think it's really interesting in the creative space, even though there is a lot of pushback with how the world of artificial intelligence is going to integrate with the world of creativity and art. But for me, it's really exciting in the way that I am focused on video content a lot of the time across my platforms. And for my storytelling, a lot of the times I want to make it as visual as possible, but there's not necessarily things that are good for free copyright use across platforms that I can find. So really helping my storytelling and also my friends feel the same when it comes to this, I'm very excited for. I think right now, like it is a shiny new toy. There is MidJourney, for example, that people utilize through Discord servers to create different generative AI images specifically. When it comes to the video side right now, it's still pretty weak. There are things like runway.ml that has kind of gained steam, but they can only do like a few seconds of video. So the possibilities are there. And that's more so what people are, are definitely talking about are the possibilities. And I think within the creative space, it's going to be great for storytelling and really bringing to life what you visualize in your mind onto a screen. But right now, when it comes to how it's affecting work in the social media landscape, it isn't too drastic, except when it comes to the deep fake conversation. Of course, there are different apps on the app store already that allow people to add, add faces to certain bodies or when it comes to video even. But there's also very much that already with images. And there have been instances across social media where it's unclear if something is real or not. It's not to an extent yet that is, I would say, too concerning or scary. But coming into the election soon, I feel like you might see that ramp up a little bit. And that is kind of like the biggest, most immediate worry, I would say, is just making sure that we have things in place that people can tell real from fake. On Twitter, there's Twitter slash X, there's community notes, which have been definitely helpful. And I've seen a lot of people call out when things are generative AI, but yeah. Well, let's unpack the, the deep faking. I, I know that's something that kind of came into people's conscious a little bit a couple of years ago. And we saw some examples like deep faking Obama, other politicians, but that took a team of computer scientists like a week with some supercomputers. Give us a sense of some of the things, some of the signals in, that you're seeing right now in terms of like, what are the new capabilities around deep faking and, and what are, what are the kind of the applications that people are, have access to now? Well, there's even things that like TikTok filters where, yeah, you can kind of change your face. The, the TikTok filters and the Instagram filters have become so advanced that they almost like, it's like these filters almost look like deep fakes in a lot of ways, right? Well, I've seen use case wise is with the rise of X and Twitter, there's been a lot of Elon Musk deep fakes. And a lot of the times there were jokes, right? 
But you look at the comments on these viral TikTok videos of an Elon Musk deepfake and people are, are assuming they're real. Like he might just be saying something silly politically or silly culturally. But yeah, people are like, oh, is it, uh, Elon Musk is actually cool. Elon Musk. I'm like, this is a fake video, guys. And there's also been situations I've seen on Twitter of viral videos where people claim something is a deep fake when it's not, which is an also interesting thing. Can people be like, oh, this is a deep fake to like kind of walk back on their words or walk back on their actions because there is kind of this blur now between real and digital. Um, that's also something I've been seeing a lot. But when it comes to platforms, there are like small apps that I see that ha- were getting lifted across TikTok. But I've seen that diet down a lot. I feel like TikTok might have disincentivized those platforms in the algorithm or something because it's been a lot less prevalent in recent months. Yeah, interesting. You you mentioned the algorithm in TikTok. Right now, we're seeing the rise of generative AI, the ability to generate new content, new patterns, new data. But as 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 Tristan Harris and Asa Raskin of the Center for Humane Technology pointed out recently, they said that actually generative AI is the second kind of big contact with AI for humanity. And the first was actually social media in the sense that that it was algorithm. And right now we have generative where we're generating content. But before that, it was curating and kind of classification AI. And I know you mentioned that maybe social media hasn't fully been impacted by generative AI, but obviously it's been heavily shaped by the the algorithm. So could you talk a little bit about what it, well, first of all, let's just talk about what it means for you as a content creator. Tell us a little bit about like, your series, Growing Digital, and kind of how you entered into being a content creator. And and then we can get into how the algorithm kind of impacts the decisions you make as a creator. Yeah, I love that you bring that up because I think even when it comes to legislation, it's like they're talking about artificial intelligence so separately from the social media conversation, even though, yeah, the past decade, they've been so integrated. Obviously, artificial intelligence has powered Google search, all these different things. When it comes to generative AI and everything, all these are going to be integrated into social media platforms in some way, especially now that you see all these platforms forming into one another feature-wise and all trying to be somewhat of a super app situation. Of course, they're going to want to integrate the most advanced new AI stuff into these platforms for their users to have like the most compelling, enticing experience. So when it comes to TikTok, TikTok has been the craziest experience algorithm-wise that we've seen. Crazy and how, what do you mean crazy? Yeah. So like mostly like compelling enticingness, but also there have been things. So and compelling for, enticingness. For, for viewers? For viewers? Yes. The content that you were receiving is more hyper-personalized than ever before. A lot of people joke that it seems like it's reading your mind, things that you didn't say out loud. It's like it knows that you want these things. But on the other hand, there have been conversations that something the Washington Post deemed as algo speak, where you are changing the way that you say things in order to help the algorithm or prevent being suppressed by the TikTok algorithm. This was definitely more prevalent 2019 through 2021 on TikTok. You had to be extremely careful about what you said. For example, you can't say like the word kill. People say unalive instead. I've noticed that. And like, yeah. and like these types of different language changes because you will be suppressed by the TikTok algorithm or like in the caption for creators, a lot of the times it, you can't say like link in bio because they kind of they think that's like promotion like or whatever. So they suppress it. This is even more prevalent in China. It's like a user goes on and they have tattoos 
on their live, their live should get shut down. And that's like very, very much the truth. They can't show their tattoos online and the artificial intelligence of the platform detects that right away. So even when it comes to on-screen text that you may have uploaded from, I, for example, I use Final Cut Pro. I don't use the in-app TikTok video editor that most users utilize. Sometimes I do, but not all the time. But if I do on-screen text within Final Cut Pro, TikTok system can still detect any type of on-screen text and possibly suppress that video. So you kind of just have to be careful. People know the certain trigger words almost that get you suppressed on the platform. But yeah, otherwise, TikTok has been really great at finding your specific audience on platforms. I've had experience growing Instagram pages. I've had experience growing Twitter pages. But TikTok has really found the audience that enjoys your work and very quickly. So everyone knows that on TikTok, it is a platform that the average person can go viral overnight, never having a viral moment in their lives before. It just takes the right video and finding the right audience from the TikTok algorithm to make that go viral overnight and have that experience. Virality is becoming more normal. I think five, 10 years ago, a viral experience online was very much associated with success on the internet or was very rare. But now I have various friends from college, high school who experienced at least one viral moment online which is just like a completely different landscape and TikTok has really been driving. What what were some of the topics that you found most resonance with your audience or that you found to be most interesting as you created Growing Digital? One that I've been really focused on is I think the conversation of digital footprints has been very prevalent. But again, because the past three years, we have kind of accepted the huge role that our digital lives play. And also platforms like TikTok, there's kind of this joke, the TikTokization of everything, the TikTokization of music, the TikTokization, no wait, TikTok, TikTokification. Sorry. I was like, TikTokization. That doesn't make sense. The TikTokification <laughs> of <mouthful>. everything. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So what so, does that mean? What does the TikTokification mean? It's like this crazy acceleration of something. So hmm. let's say a clothing item goes viral on TikTok. It can sell out. Oh, I see hundreds of thousands, millions of that clothing item. People have even joked around recently, which is actually true, the TikTokification of Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift was already a huge artist, but her heiress tour going so viral and people being so in tune with it every day, all day on TikTok has taken her her celebrity to crazy new heights. We've had artists come out the past few years, for example, Ice Spice in the most recent year, Within less than a year, she was yeah, blown up on TikTok. She was at the Met Gala and she's young 20s. It's this toxification of subjects, people that just puts them into like outer space. That's kind of the conversation around it. But anyway, when it comes to digital footprints, we're seeing now, especially with a generation that has grown up with these platforms again since middle school, if not being on it before, you're not supposed to, but we all gotten ways around getting on them before. Of, yeah, you have these crazy digital footprints that you can't really go back on. And pe- they're now kind of coming back to light. As people in our generation are in their 20s, you're finding these kind of weaponized against them, which is an interesting hmm. dynamic. And it's the dynamic of, should we necessarily judge these people's digital footprints? Or should we judge the people who are bringing up their digital footprints from five, eight, ten years ago? And there's also that conversation, too, when it comes to posting people without their consent. This is something that has, again, TikTok has taken that to new levels. People will find anything that they think can be a viral moment. It probably can be a viral moment today because virality is more accessible than ever before. So people see someone doing something weird on the streets, they record it. The first place they go, 
where is this going to make the most impact in quotes? Where is this going to be the most valuable? TikTok. They post these videos of people who have never had a viral experience and they have a viral experience without their consent. This is becoming way more normal. I saw a situation last week where someone in a New York City subway was joking around with their friend. Someone across the subway thought that they were bullying this person. They put it on TikTok. This person's bullying some blah, 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 like trying to take them down. And they hmm. had to come on and they've never posted on the internet before. Clarify for TikTok that this was my friend. Like, and it's another right. situation Every- of what you, should we be judging the people being posted without their consent or should we judge the people who are posting them without their consent? It's like these new social dynamics, which is really interesting. Talk a little bit about what's the sustainability of building a career as a content creator is versus like a momentary flash in the pan where you have a moment of virality. I think the current s- statistic out there is that the average lifespan, in quotes, like of a, a creator who goes like all in on their work online is, I think, about two years. So that's really short. And when I think about it, yeah, the my favorite creators growing up, again, since middle school, how many I've kind of gone through and how many have come and go is a lot. But again, you also see kind of people come and go in waves. But there's this kind of growing conversation right now about the creator middle class, people who aren't making like the huge bucks on social media platforms, but, you know, have been able to sustain a full time living, how that is becoming harder to sustain because like we're saying, the normalcy of virality in how many eyes, like how many pieces of content and how many people we are seeing a day. When social media used to be more prompted by you, like a YouTube search bar, like a, a follower list. Now these platforms are mostly recommended and like algorithmic feeds, recommendation algorithm feeds. You're just seeing more and more people that you're not necessarily opting into yourself. So it's becoming more about the individual content than it is about necessarily the person in a lot of ways. That's Hmm. also not fully true. It's kind of a double-edged sword, but it definitely goes into this conversation of the the weakening creator middle class, the top of the top, continuously growing, the Mr. Beast of the world, Logan Pauls, the MKBHDs, they can continue, they're growing, growing, yeah, super quickly. They're able to invest so much more money. It feels almost impossible to keep up with how they are innovating because they have become so big. And then there's the people who, yeah, it's like just a thing that complements their everyday life or it's kind of like a side hustle thing that brings in some money, but they can't go full full time into it. it. It's hard to sustain when it comes to the algorithm. And it's this conversation that a lot of people who create careers online, like Tim Ferriss has talked about this. He's had more longevity in the online space of you're trying to find your thousand true fans in a way. So these yeah. people who really align with what you do and will kind of follow you where you go and subscribe to your work and everything rather than trying to necessarily appeal to the masses because the masses are more of a volatile type of audience to attune to. So really trying to find your core audience who will buy into your products and everything because that's a conversation amongst creators too is like initially maybe you can have those viral moments for a year or two and feed off of AdSense to sustain yourself for a living, but that can only last so long and you want to kind of branch off into different streams of income with your platform at the helm and bringing people into that. So, yeah. We have a history of social media of being curated essentially by AI algorithms. 
And now we're starting to see with generative AI, the ability to generate content, generate yeah. very realistic looking synthetic humans with real, realistic sounding voices that can, with, with scripts that have been generated by large language models that are topical, insi- often insightful, sometimes funny or flirty, depending on what the character you're trying to put forth. So I'm, I'm curious what you're seeing, like, right, so we see like AI curated social media, now we're kind of about to see AI generated social media. Talk to me about like examples of kind of the AI generated social media that you're seeing and what you see maybe for that intersection. On Twitter, I've been seeing a lot of startups working on that. Synthetic humans, mostly for yourself. In the same way that right now there's a platform called Descript. It started as a podcasting platform, but now has integrated video. You're able to get like an AI duplicate of your voice. And let's say you forgot to say a sentence in your podcast or whatever, you write it in. It helps you bring that to life. So it actually generates your voice. It trains on your voice and then can have you say anything that you didn't say. Exactly. Exactly. Which is... Yeah, if, if, you know, casually, if I'm like, oh, yeah, I did forget to say that. That's fun. The bigger implications are a little more wishy-washy than just the creator world. When it comes to the video aspect of it, again, the synthetic humans, and I'm sure Descript is probably planning on getting into this world as well. When, yeah, it is videos and not, there have been, there's been something called synthesia, which has Mm -hmm. kind of been presentation-like. It's very robotic. The, the synthetic human is not, a view is not moving. But now these new ones, they are more expressive and they can do the hand motions and the blinks and everything like that. And when I first think about that, that's terrifying in a lot of ways. But then again, it's so niche how the benefits of it are more in the creator world. When I think about sometimes, yeah, I sit in front of a camera to get my idea out to the world. I have to sit in front of a camera and record for hours upon hours. And it, it, it that in itself feels robotic like in a lot of ways Hmm. and i've thought about that recently when it comes to i utilize adobe podcast their ai voice enhancer for my videos and because i've been like it's so weird to see everyone attached to a mic these days like everyone has their podcast mic in their face every and like that's not fully humans and i was like i want like mics out of my videos at this point and so I've just been using the Adobe podcast to enhance my voice so it sounds studio professional. And it allows me to have that more human element of getting a mic out of the way. It's just me and the camera and my voice sounds studio professional wise. So I'm like, it kind of humanized the video experience more in a way. And then, but yeah, when it comes to the synthetic humans, I think it's kind of scary at first, but I would kind of love to just feed my, my favorite parts of creating my work is the research, is the idea generation, and creating the storyline. I don't necessarily love sitting in front of a camera for hours and recording. I would happily feed that to my synthetic human if it comes off the same expressiveness as me and share that within my video editing and everything. But again, the implications are a lot bigger and we need like rules in place where people cannot utilize other synthetic, other people's synthetic humans, et cetera, because, or else that's going to kind of snowball out of control. Yeah. On this topic of synthetic humans, you had a recent YouTube episode, I believe it was called Loneliness as a Market Opportunity, talking specifically about this crop of basically virtual companion bots. And they're not just chat bots. They often have a like a visual component. Some some of them have some video. Some of them just send you pictures of themselves. 
some of them can actually speak with you with yep. like a very realistic human voice, things like replica. People have been using, many people have been having as friends. I, I've seen things like a, a lot more of these AI girlfriends like Ava AI and more recently Karen mm-hmm. AI. And when we talk about, when we talk about artificial intelligence and human work and human labor, we, we often know, skip over the emotional labor category. And it's, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about kind of what you're seeing in this space of these AI generated companion bots that seem to be on the rise. There's literally, I believe, millions of users on Replica now that have very yeah. deep relationships with these bots. And that was even before we had kind of GPT level conversation. They were even more uncanny valley before. Yep. But now we're seeing Karen AI where she can touch the very personal. She says your name. She's responding to things you have in the conversation. She remembers your favorite, your birthday and your, your favorite stuff. And so talk to us, talk to me a little bit about like this category of AI for emotional labor. Yeah. So Replica, like you said, has been around for years. I think it, I remember it went viral on TikTok, maybe 2020, 2021. And a lot of people were downloading it. They said as a joke, but I'm interested to see how many converted into utilizing it more often when they initially downloaded it as a joke. Also, I think a conversation people didn't really have was in the media, which was interesting because ChatGPT was this huge conversation. But then Snapchat, when they came out with my AI, which is I feel like ChatGPT keeps the conversation very professional. It's not companion-like. But my AI on Snapchat, which got pinned to all users' chats at the very top, unable to mm-hmm. be unpinned, was just forced upon users, is much a GP- more... GPT-4-powered friend on Snapchat, mm-hmm. essentially, that they pinned to the top of your conversations. Yep. And, and it was it's much more companion-like. Like, it has far less boundaries when it comes to casual conversation. Not to the point of romantic conversation, though. It doesn't go that far. And uh, yeah, you see with Karen AI, she charges people by the minute to talk to her. Karen AI is an influencer. She Her actually biggest platform is on Snapchat. She isn't... The real human the, influencer. Yeah. Yeah, the real... I know, gosh. <laughs> it's hard to keep track, right? <laughs> I know, sorry. It's like uh, she isn't in the OnlyFans world, but she is more suggestive in her messaging on Snapchat. So her audience is like very much predominantly male. I think 98% of the thousands of people that now utilize Karen AI or synthetic version of conversationalist of herself are male and they pay by the minute. And Replica CEO has come out and said, that's not the model we want to do because that's just hooking people on for time reasons rather than like- The pay by the minute. Yeah. That we don't want to try to make people addicted to this, right? Yep. So they're and, t- taking a bit of an uh, ethical stance, right? Exactly. Which is just, I don't know, it's just interesting in itself. But when it comes to these things, I also get scared on the creator end of like, it is important to put boundaries with your parasocial relationships. That's a growing conversation in itself. Again, these are buzzword terms, digital footprint, parasocial relationships. But it is really interesting in the past year or so how much these the prevalence of these has grown. I well, have let's friends. unpack, let's unpack yeah. parasocial relationship because I'm not sure everybody's familiar with that. Yeah. So it's a one-sided relationship that you have with a media persona. The, the relationship has been prevalent since the early days of TV. I think it was coined in like the 1950s. But today you have more access to your version of celebrities than ever before. Today's versions of celebrities are often, yeah, creators and influencers. And in the past when you saw a celebrity in a movie, Maybe once or twice a year. Now you're seeing their daily lives every day. 
Sometimes people live stream 24-7. We recently saw one of the biggest live streamers in the in the country, Kai Sinat. He's, I think, 21 or 22 years old. He just got charged for inciting a riot in New York City by accident because he told his fans where he was and floods of fans come, which isn't that crazy. You've seen that with celebrities in the past. But he's this wild persona online. He's fun, upbeat. So his fans are going to emulate how he acts. And they are a lot of teenagers. And they think they're his friend. So it's kind of like they're all just trying to get to him and talk to him. But anyway, parasocial relationships, yeah, they're, it's also kind of a dangerous game. If your your video goes viral and you're in front of a million people, there's bound to be one weirdo in the mix, right? So it kind of puts you at a, a different level of risk. And with Karen, she said... For Karen AI, she's already had to hire security and everything like that, mostly for the backlash she was getting initially. But I'm sh- she's going to have to maintain that because these people are going to – it's going to kind of be this mind warp of they are talking to her on a daily basis. They have this relationship with her. They know it is AI. It is called Karen AI. But there's still those weird elements. And you never know, again, who these people are. And there could be one – all it takes is one-off case to put you in an unsafe situation. And it seems like it's kind of playing with fire a little bit when it comes to parasocial relationships. You're seeing a lot of creators become more private because of how these relationships have been breached. But then you're also seeing, again, you're kind of seeing extremes. People go more private and then people go all in on something like Karen AI where they're just making their conversations with them accessible at all times for people, which is interesting. And do you have any thoughts on kind of what this means for the psychology of humans that are increasingly, we're already having relationships with people that we don't actually have relationships with, celebrities and things. But what if it feels like they actually know us and they know our names and remember us and know things about our lives and it feels like we're having a relationship? Mm -hmm. It's hard because I think people are starting, again, the conversation has grown a lot over past months when we've seen these kind of extreme parasocial relationships examples with Taylor Swift, with Kai Sinat, with Emma Chamberlain, all these different influencers and also mega celebrities still, that what your relationship with these people parasocially should be, you shouldn't look at them as a friend. You shouldn't necessarily watch every piece of content they put out. You should opt into their content when you are in a certain mindset or when you're looking for for a certain piece of information. I think we've been so used to being passive users of social media and just consuming whatever comes across our feed. And especially with the rise of the free page because of TikTok, now every platform is trying to implement some version of that type of recommended content and recommended feed and calling it often the free page, questioning if that should be our defaults that we succumb to and or if we should be more intentional about when we opt into someone's content, how often we watch someone's content. I've stopped listening to, like I used to, listen to the same people's podcast every week. But I'm like, I'm giving these people so much of my time. What I really need to do is just opt in. And so when I have a certain topic I'm interested about, let's say it's parasocial relationships, I go to their podcast and I see if they've talked about parasocial relationships recently. And then I listen to their podcast. Not this every week giving them a lot of my time. So I think okay. it's just kind of conversations around how we should approach those relationships. One of the reasons that we wanted to chat with you is because as somebody who follows very closely trends in social media and technology and kind of specifically social trends, there's a new trend that's come out on TikTok that we're very fascinated by it. IFTF, we talk we talk about signals, signals of change, little small kind of new behaviors or new things that are happening that could kind of indicate much larger kind of changes in the future. And this is the NPC trend. 
<laughs> and before we go in on it, I want to make sure that our listeners, our viewers are familiar a little bit with the context so they can really appreciate what we're talking about here. So first of all, could you just explain a little bit about what TikTok lives are and what they kind of mean economically for, for creators and, and maybe talk about the kind of gifting that is involved in that in general? Yeah, I think first to set the tone too, NPC means non-player character which mm -hmm. is like those the characters in video games that are a part of the storyline, but you can't control. And they might say a line here and there, or they're just like in the corner to look good or whatever it may be. And they're usually very robotic. Looking, oh, right? for sure. Yeah. Yes. Very robotic movements. People kind of joke around like certain characters or certain video games, what their, their go-to moves are. Anyway, so TikTok Live is vertical live streaming like you've probably seen on a platform like instagram there's live streaming of course on youtube and twitch but that is horizontal tiktok live is their vertical live stream it may come up on your free page when you're scrolling a lot of the time there are recommended lives but it's kind of known to be a a weird corner of the internet whenever you come across a tiktok live on your feed it is typically like the weirdest thing you've ever seen kind of similar yeah. to snapchat's discover page in a lot of ways a lot of people used to do ASMR and still do on TikTok lives, but it is, yeah, less necessarily like your favorite creator going on live, though many do utilize it here and there, maybe once a month. There are kind of people specifically who use TikTok live as like their main medium on that platform rather than posting videos on a daily basis. What happens on TikTok lives is there's a comment section that's coming and going, as you've probably seen on other live platforms. But then there's also the ability to gift. It's very gamified. Like when you go on this screen, there are a ton of numbers going. There are a ton of gifts going. And what gifts are is that a user can spend their hard-earned money <laughs> on a TikTok live gift and they can send it to this creator. Form of tipping yeah. basically, but it's like you get a little animation or an image or... Yes, exactly. And what this MPC trend has shown us, it started with a creator called Pinky Doll. And when people would send these gifts, she would have emotes, a.k.a. a certain reaction that she would do to each gift. So for ice cream, she would say, ice cream so good. For GG, which was one of the, the GIFs, gifts, and I'm not sure what it stands for by TikTok, but she would say gang gang, for example. So every time these gifts would come up, she would say those certain words and do those certain actions with those gifts. People didn't necessarily know that at first. And when people would post repost of the lives on Twitter, it wouldn't show what's happening on the screen. So people were just like wildly confused. But that's what was going on. And, and just, she, uh, just just to explain again. So we <laughs> see a creator there basically saying the same thing. Ooh, ice cream. So good. Gang, gang. Ice cream so good. <laughs> for literally hours, right? Hours. Uh, yeah. Hours. Like, oh, there's a thank you for the prize. I mean, there's like several dozen different gifts that you can give everything from like tennis balls and flower. I guess flowers is one of the co like, yeah, like smells so good. Oh, roses smells so good. She'll say this over and over again. So people, people can give these gifts that are maybe a penny, but then some of them go way up to like three or four or even $500 for yes. one. You just click on a gift and like, I think there's like a universe or a galaxy. So this is like a $500 tip that you're giving somebody, right? Uh -huh. I mean, it's, it's mostly roses and ice cream, I, I've noticed. But <laughs> Yeah, mostly the dollar ones. But she, because of how the attention economy works, people were making these videos go viral on Twitter, trying to analyze and dissect them. But people became fascinated by it and started going over to her TikTok. And she's been getting so many viewers that she's been making $7,000 a day 
at some points. So for her, she is kind of the epitome of this NPC TikTok trend. But then you saw it ripple through culture. And when you press a TikTok live, you can scroll live feeds the same way you can any video on TikTok. And it was wild. I scrolled through maybe 100 as a test. And I kid you not, probably 60 out of the 100 I scrolled through were people now emulating this NPC TikTok live trend, making their own new emotes to differentiate themselves because it's hard to differentiate yourself when you're just doing the same thing for hours. But I haven't done it in the past week. So that was kind of the peak of the trend. I'm interested to see now if like what percent of the hundred I go through are still those NPC trends or if it truly was a trend or if it is sustainable and if it is sustainable for like what percent of people, because it is, again, something that's hard to differentiate yourself. And it does seem that those kind of those top creators who do it, that people will continue to flock to rather than seas and mounds of creators doing it. Yeah, Pinky Doll, I believe, was kind of one of the originators of this. She was also well known for holding a flattening iron and putting a single corn of popcorn kernel in there and just <laughs> letting and people waiting for it to pop. So yep. kind of building that anticipation. But what one of the things that's just so remarkable about it is that in general, it's just extremely repetitive. I mean, it's literally people saying like, thank you for the roses. Thank you for the roses. Ice cream so good. Like gang, 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 gang for hours and hours. And like you said, TikTok lives tend to be a, a very interesting slice of humanity and a little very and very different, I find, like as a, as a TikTok user who's kind of cultivated my own algorithm, I get a lot of people in the regular wall where people are just sharing videos that they've recorded. I get a lot of people like yourself, like talking about technology and society or philosophy or social issues. But then you go over and suddenly like you, it almost seems like anti-content in a way. Like it's, I think what's fascinating, there's a couple of things. Number one, that, that anybody is watching this. Number two, that people are paying to watch it. Sometimes tens of dollars, if not hundreds of dollars to push this forward. And that it has sustained. I mean, it did seem like potentially it was something that was only going to happen for a little while. I know around, I think it was like about a month ago that Nerdy Winter, another user kind of went on and revealed how much Pinky Doll was making and made her own TikTok saying like, hey, she's making a lot of money. I'm going to start doing this. And that <laughs> kind of opened it up. And suddenly all these other creators realized, oh, this is a big moneymaker. Literally, as you said, like people are making hundreds, if not thousands of dollars in a couple hours. I mean, some of these streamers, it seems like they're on all day now. Like yep. from I, I've seen there's a mama one where she holds her baby and she's being a robotic TikToker, like playing the She's NPC bringing the role. baby into it. Is it a real baby? It's a real baby. And she has her, her daughter coming in. And there's all sorts of variations. So when we first saw it about a month ago, we said, okay, that's a weird thing. But it seems to have sustained and it seems to have economically sustained. So one of the things we're always looking for, like I said, is these signals. Like, what could this mean? It seems quite interesting that this is a moment where basically all of humanity is already worried about being replaced by AI. And then here we have this new genre of entertainment that people are paying for, where it's humans imitating AI and doing it poorly. So how do you see this intersection of this moment where AI is potentially coming to take our jobs and now people are like creating jobs being AI? Some people, I guess, would argue that People are trying to mimic AI in order to compete with it. That's like Elon Musk's argument with Neuralink is that you have, you'll have to get Neuralink in order to compete with these platforms. Like you have to embody 
noble platforms as in artificial intelligence. Like you have to embody that game in order to continue on. So it's almost like that's what people are doing. It is kind of the same thing. You have to become more technology to to compete with technology. Is yeah, that exactly. That's kind of the sentiment. And I think at the end of the day too, it's like it's the it's an interaction with the creator that's different because yeah, you are able to change their movements. In the same way with live streamers today, you're able to send like a super chat and the streamer will read out your message. You're actually like prompting them to do something that's fascinating for people. I'm watching this. I see it on Twitter. I'm like, this is so brain numbing. I get on and I'm watching it for way too long because it's mesmerizing. I remember when it was like the height of it. I'm watching I'm like, yeah, the popcorn. And like, oh, there's so many different things going on. It's so gamified that it's easy to sit there and sit back and watch for much longer than you'd expect yourself to. But again, you have to, it's just about becoming a conscious consumer. There are so many ways to be distracted today more than ever before. And the ways to be distracted are more compelling and enticing than ever before. And it is kind of just like, this almost mental warfare element, to be honest, that you are constantly fighting against to bring focus back into your life and to what you need to do that day to get where you ideally want to be in the long term. We're playing a lot of short term games, making a lot of short term decisions that are just like distracting us. And I think this trend is just kind of adding on to that in a very extreme way. It's fine to indulge in here and there, but I think there are then the types that are a percent bigger than we want to admit that indulge in these things like way too much and it's kind of messing with their own personal lives in the real world this is like one example of things that is grabbing people's attention and it seems like it's one of the only ways that a lot of creators are making money so there's a kind of financial incentive right so we have humans imitating ai because the ai algorithm is going to help them get paid essentially <laughs> right mm-hmm it's and it's hard. It's like I do not put any hate onto so yeah someone like Pinky Dog or whoever who's doing this. Would I personally decide to play into this ecosystem? No, but I get that she she was talking about how she was laid off and she just needed to find ways to support herself and her son. So she opted into this and it's worked for her. It is a, definitely again a short term game, and I don't think a lot of long term reward comes from short term games. But I, I can't blame people for needing to make money to sustain themselves, right? And at the end of the day, it puts responsibility on us as consumers of like, yeah, you can opt into this or not. But again, just trying to be as conscious as possible. Given this existing culture of algorithmic content creation that you've been involved in, and now we're entering into this period of generative AI with AI doing all sorts of different things. How do you think Gen Zers today are thinking about their career at this moment where AI is such a big part of our environment right now? I think people have, of course, a lot of question marks. Like you said earlier, there's the sentiment of, is AI going to do things better than us? And is it going to take over? And are companies going to be completely AI run in terms of not needing to utilize any individuals? And that's scary. I think at the end of the day, when we look at these trends of 60 to 70% of kids today wanting to be influencers, creators. It just comes down to people wanting autonomy and people wanting security. They see, again, the biggest creators and aspire to that, but it's not, you have to be a little more realistic. I think we have to figure out, and it's something being discussed now, what do we want our relationship with work to be? Sam Altman is kind of like, 
there's this weird sentiment around, okay, people don't want to work, but then they're scared because of AI. It's like it all comes down to money and a lack of security at the end of the day that people are worried about. You think about your childhood and you have a lot more time on your hands and you find how to ideally utilize that time and you find how to connect with others and everything. Like I'm not necessarily too scared about the work element if that somehow goes away. But just helping people find security financially is going to be what's most important. But I think also when it comes to generative AI and companies in general, should we allow companies to be 100% AI run? And should a certain percent of profits have to go to humans in some way? You know, it kind of comes that into play too. I've seen a ton of YouTube channels come about that utilize generative AI in their scripting, utilize generative AI in their video making, and they are putting out like 100 videos per day, just machine-like, chugging out videos, chugging out videos that are catering to the algorithm. Should there be content limits so that things can be more human? Because it is not humanly possible for someone to put out a hundred decent quality videos on YouTube per day. Like trying to create these incentives on platforms to make them as human as possible and make them as fair as possible when it comes to again competing with machines. Because yeah, that you we can't compete without output. It's not humanly possible again. So I think just trying to find the boundaries and how to make the relationship complementary is what people are, are worried about right now because we don't know the answers. We haven't seen like a big example of that integration into work yet that really like wipes pe- the people out of the company. So I think people are just trying to figure out solutions for how to make it complementary. Last question. I said, we're always thinking about long-term futures and really 10-year forecasts. Do you have any sort of 10-year forecast of a preferable future that you'd like to see in terms of how this AI and work plays out in your own career? Hmm. That's a hard question because it's like year to year, you can never anticipate what happens. The pandemic really showed us that. It's like a complete wrench in the system and 180. And I think about that too. I remember coming out of college, having my first job. And for me, I was just sitting at a desk all day, having to commute one hour each way and not talking to anyone. I was like, this is such a waste. Why is work from home like not a bigger conversation than the pandemic happens? Completely 180s that. The company I worked for, it would have been another maybe five to 10 years before that was even on their radar. It is the weird, the timing of events that like almost pushed this needed like, again, so much bad came from COVID, but it is kind of weird technologically how it accelerated us in a lot of ways culturally, if you think about it. I don't know, ten, five to 10 year forecast. I think for me, I am more optimistic about further integrating with tech. I think there's a lot of negative sentiment around it, and rightfully so, because it does push against our human nature in a lot of ways. But I also think our relationship with tech, if used correctly and more consciously and intentionally, can kind of bring you into having a better sense of self and being more connected with yourself, which is a weird thing. We see yeah, the growing loneliness epidemic and all of these things that people are saying. It does Technology is kind of pushing us further into the self than like community in a lot of ways. And which is like scary, but also not. It, I think we just have to look at it more positively. I, I don't know. It's so hard. It's so weird. I've asked you the hardest question about. possible. I know. Yeah, I know. I, know. So, I just think yeah. I'm more optimistic about it than other people are. And I think, yes. What what with, what drives your optimism? Because I think with extreme bad potential, there also comes extreme good. And I think the past two decades, we haven't had 
yeah, legislation, regulation around our relationship with technology. And we're realizing, yeah, we do need to put some boundaries in place. And I think a lot of smart people are willing to help put those boundaries in place of, again, creating this relationship of limits and also having to mark artificial intelligence content on platforms like these little these are little things that make a huge difference in our dynamics with this type of media um i do worry though about again people's elements of distraction and focus that is and people need to again be more conscious consumers but i think if we have more a more conscious relationship with technology it can be really cool and again you can be more connected with yourself so that's what i'm excited about it's again very general woo woo a little bit but yeah i think I'm optimistic about it. Well, Jules Terpak, thank you so much for talking with us today and just sharing your perspectives as a creator and as someone who's thinking about the future. And we look forward to following your future forecasts and more of your activities online. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Institute for the Future is the world's oldest continuously running futures research and educational organization. At IFTF, we believe people can harness the power of imagination to awaken a sense of agency in their own futures and drive change in themselves and their organizations. Be sure to subscribe to the Future Now podcast and find out more about IFTF by visiting IFTF.org. Until next time.